Hey, soccer fans, this is Nick for Sons of a Pitch Soccer Central. Morocco at the World Cup is continuing its dream run, and they are in the semifinals with a chance to be the first non-European, non-South American team to ever make it to the World Cup finals. There is a lot of drama going on, and similarly, USMNT fans are asking, why can't we do that? I'm going to take a look and compare the Moroccan squad with that of this year's USMNT squad, and maybe we can shed some light on that answer. In the second half of the show, we are also going to continue our roundup of all the transfers and trades and signings going around in MLS. But for now, sit back, relax, and listen to that intro music. <laughs> Hey, soccer fans. Once again, this is Nick for Sons of a Pitch Soccer Central, and I am happy to be back speaking with you, talking all things American soccer, and we're going to focus on our USMNT comparisons to the Moroccan squad. A Moroccan squad in the semifinals, only the third non-European, non-South American team to get to the semifinals with South Korea in 2002 and the United States going all the way back to 1930 being the other two squads. So that is what we're going to look at because the Americans want to know if Morocco can do it, why can't us? We're going to compare the two squads and it might be a little apples to oranges, but we're going to do our best to see exactly what that means. I want to thank everyone who joins us week in and week out on our chats live here on YouTube. So if you're listening on the podcast, make sure you come on over, like the video, subscribe to the channel, and join our live conversations. We already have Connor Knows Soccer, a new Wiseman, Angus McCorder, and Rocky at Talking to Woods jumping in the chat, giving their comments and takes, and we're going to address all of those as we compare this USMNT team to that of their Mexico counterparts. So let's take a look and see exactly what this USMNT team doesn't have that this Moroccan team does have, right? Let's look at their group stage results here. Morocco had a 0-0 draw versus Croatia, a 2-0 victory over Belgium, and then a 2-1 victory over Canada, whereas the United States ended up with a 1-1 draw versus Wales, a 0-0 draw versus England, and a 1-0 victory over Iran. In the knockouts, we know what happened to the United States, a 3-1 loss to the Netherlands, they were extremely outcoached in that one. Louis van Gaal had a master class, as people are saying. He lined up the Dutch team exactly in the spots they needed to counter the United States and their pressing possession style, right? Now, look, again, we're not here to rip on Greg Berhalter, even though he did get outcoached in this one. But, hey, what, what was he going to do in this game? Completely change everything that was the identity of this team in order to maybe try and go toe-to-toe with the Dutch? Now, he took it to him, and the Dutch countered. What can we say? We talked about that over the last couple episodes. But where Morocco had the edges is it looked like they were better suited to kind of see out a 0-0 draw versus Spain and, and then take it to penalties and hold on to that one nothing win against Portugal. And, and these are some generalities, and we'll get into some specifics in a minute. But being able to hold on to that one nothing lead against Portugal, they looked a lot more comfortable doing that than the United States did holding on to that one nothing lead against Iran. 
and even the draw against Wales, which they didn't hold on to that one nothing lead, right? They ended up with the draw. So Morocco seemed to be so much more comfortable in those scenarios than the USMNT. And we're going to take a look at some of the reasons why that could be. Um, first of all, the biggest thing that I've heard people commenting and saying and talking about when you look at why Morocco, why not the United States, is the club level of the players, right? There's got to be some sort of big difference in club where either Moroccan players are are in better positions and better clubs or getting more minutes and whatever the case may be. But then again, you hear the counterpoint, look at Saudi Arabia. They were able to upset Argentina with guys playing completely in the Saudi league. So maybe the club conversation isn't as heavy weighted as some of the other factors that are out there, but let's take a look and see. So I looked at the Moroccan starting lineup against uh, Spain and I looked at their bench players and the same thing for the United States. I looked at their starting lineup versus the Dutch and their bench players. And I compared that to who's playing in top five leagues, who's playing in other European leagues and who's just playing in other leagues outside of Europe, right? Top five leagues, England, Italy, Spain, Germany, France, Italy, England, Spain, Germany, France. Good. I can count to five. Those are the five top leagues in the world that most people consider. Uh, and so we're going to go with those. Now, Morocco, seven of their starters are playing in top five leagues. Three of their starters are playing around Europe and one other starter is playing elsewhere. Now, if you want to look at their bench, seven players are playing in top five leagues three are playing in Europe, and five are playing in other leagues. So 14 players on the Moroccan roster are in a top five league. Now let's take a look at the United States now. For the United States, nine U.S. starters are playing in a top five league, but no other American starters were playing around Europe, and two other American starters were playing in other leagues, the MLS to be specific. Now, four American bench players were in a top five league, four others were playing in Europe, and seven other Americans were playing in other leagues around the world. Those seven were all in MLS. So you look at top five talent, it's very similar between the United States and Morocco, but where you can kind of make the distinction is the back end of that roster is heavy MLS, whereas the back end of the Moroccan roster is playing around Europe or other leagues internationally. Now, are we really going to say that, let's see, that um, either the Saudi League or the Moroccan or the Qatari League, or even to a, a maybe a little bit better extent, the Turkish League, uh, is, is on par with or better or worse than Major League Soccer? I don't know. I don't want to get into that discussion, but at least looking at top five leagues, European leagues and other leagues around the world, if you consider other leagues around Europe and Africa and Asia to be better than the, than MLS, then that gives the edge to Morocco, at least on the back half of their roster. But if, if the starting lineup, if that's what we're going to focus on, and, and I'm going to jump into some of your comments here in just a moment, if we're going to focus on the starting roster here, the United States had nine starters that were in top five leagues so then what exactly is it that's the difference between these two now the next piece of of criticism and information that i've been reading up and seeing and hearing people talk about is, is that it has nothing to or i shouldn't say nothing to do it doesn't have as much to do with the team you're on as the minutes you play and the starting role you might have 
So if you look at the United States men's national team, sure, we've got Pulisic at Chelsea. Sure, we've got McKenney at Juventus and Dest at AC Milan. And we have, um, gosh, now I'm, I'm drawing blanks here, right? We've got Ream and Robinson at Fulham. And we have Aronson and Adams at Leeds. We've got a lot of those guys in the top leagues, right? But they're not week in and week out starters. Reem would be the exception. Adams and and Adams would be the exception at Leeds as well. Aronson, I think he's getting a lot of minutes. But McKenney, uh, when he's healthy, he's starting for Juventus, but hasn't always been healthy. Reyna has not been healthy, has not been playing at Dortmund. Uh, Scali has been, I think, in and out of the lineup at Borussia Mönchengladbach. Uh, Pulisic has not been in the lineup at Chelsea. So we have guys at these big clubs, but they're not getting starting minutes. Thankfully, Matt Turner is ready to go and go no matter what the situation, day, week, weather forecast, whatever it is. If he's starting at Arsenal, starting at New England, or, or on the bench for either one, Matt Turner is ready to go. I think that is a major, major difference in this United States squad and this Morocco squad, that the Moroccan players even if they're not in a top five league, they are getting quality minutes. They're getting starting minutes and they're getting all that in-game live experience that is helping them out in those scenarios. We discussed seeing a game out one, nothing or being able to hold on for the last five, 10 minutes and play for penalty kicks, something of those kind of game states, those game natures. So those are all things to remember. Now let's take a look at a few comments that we have gotten in here. Angus McCorder starts off the conversation, maybe Morocco has a better coach. Maybe, maybe he does. And maybe Greg Berhalter completely got in his own head and overthought tactics and things. That's definitely a possibility. Definitely a possibility. Um, and and yeah, but Morocco, we got to remember, after their 3 nothing loss to the United States in a friendly match, they ended up firing their coach and bringing in a new coach. So he had a real short turnaround time to get this Morocco team prepped and ready for the World Cup. So maybe he really is that good if he was able to get them into the semifinals with a little prep time. So maybe, yes, coaching is definitely a factor. But I wanted to make sure that we focused on the players and the squads because, goodness, you want to start talking about how good or how bad are the choices of Greg Berhalter, man, then you are going to get lost down some Twitter rabbit holes, let me tell you, Angus. Also, a new Wiseman says, Morocco had some awesome counterattacks. Absolutely. They knew exactly how to exploit uh, the opposing defenses on those counterattacks, and, and they did it well. And maybe that is a little bit of talent and experience. Maybe that is a little bit of coaching. But you got to think that the United States, with their counterattacks, heck, look at that first goal against Wales on the counterattack, Pulisic to Wea, right? I think there were maybe three maybe four passes before that goal was scored. That was prime counterattacking football. Morocco had just done it to a much better extent, no doubt about it. Angus also jumps in and chimes, Morocco is one of the top-notch teams in the group stage. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. They were there to win and play their best, whereas the United States came in with a different strategy. Greg Burhalter has been quoted saying, this is like two tournaments. You've got the group stage, and then you've got the knockouts. So different mentalities, different approaches, right? Connor knows soccer. I love this comment. African qualifying is just built different. That's the reason Morocco is way better. Plus, they got players in Europe, all either starters or star subs. So, yeah, you're looking at how Morocco has to qualify in Africa. Now, do you want to compare CONCACAF and AFCON? If you do, I'd be willing to bet that top to bottom, the African Confederation 
has a lot higher level of competition than CONCACAF. We know who are the top six teams in CONCACAF year in and year out. Canada, the United States, Mexico, Costa Rica, Panama, and then throw in a Honduras or Jamaica, or if you want to say Trinidad and Tobago, go for it, right? We haven't seen the likes of a of a Belize or a Puerto Rico or Cuba or any of those other countries really elevate themselves yet to challenge for a top six or now a top eight octagonal qualifying spot. But if you want to look in Africa, you've got South Africa who hosted the 2010 World Cup, who is an okay team, but they have now some soccer history after hosting the 2010 World Cup. But you've got the traditional powerhouses like Nigeria, like Egypt, now Morocco. Um, You always have competitive squads coming out of Africa and playing, and you always have those surprise squads too. You've also got Ivory Coast. Let's not forget about them. Ghana, Cameroon. You can name probably eight to ten African nations before you really start to see a bit of a drop-off. So, yes, I think the competition for Morocco in Africa is a lot more difficult than for the United States in CONCACAF. And, yeah, you're absolutely right, Connor. With such close proximity to Europe, being right there across the Straits of Gibraltar, there's going to be a lot of European influence in the way that they play. I like a new Wiseman's comment here. He says, one thing I like about the Japanese is their football structure is perfection and which we need heavily with MLS and USL. Now, I don't know too much about the Japanese Federation and how they've structured it, but I'm sure going back to pre-2002 when they hosted with South Korea, they had a plan in place to develop a structured football league. So a new Wiseman, let us know if there's any little more details you can give us about this Japanese structure and how it differentiates between the United States uh, and how we've structured USL and MLS with our tiers, right? And yeah, a new Wiseman jumps in and says the fact that Nigeria and Egypt did not qualify for the World Cup tells us how competitive is AFCON. Absolutely. And here, a final comment on this from Angus McCorder. This is Morocco's sixth World Cup. Gradual refinement of their system might have helped them become this successful. And there you go. They have been building towards this. And I say it in in my recent blog post, I get into some more details about this. They've been building towards this, especially because they wanted to host in 2022. They they had put a bid in as well. Uh, And I think they were also going for 2026. Um, They were building towards this. The United States hit the reset button in 2018 after failing to qualify. Let's take a look at a few other metrics here, a few other things that, that I thought were interesting between the United States and Morocco experience. Experience matters. We know that no matter how athletic and how technically gifted you are, experience matters, especially in tournament play and especially in the tournament of all tournaments in the World Cup. Now, the average age for Morocco's roster, their 26-man roster, is 26 years old. They have five players that were 30 years old and over and three players that were 20 years and younger. Meanwhile, the United States' average age was 25, three players 30 and over, three players 20 and under. So if you want to just look at that, it's about the same. But but let's really dive into that middle section of the roster. The Moroccan squad, most of their players, I would say, were in the age range of kind of 25, 26 to 29. Whereas for the United States, their age range was kind of in the 22 to 23 range, right? So the Moroccan players, I would say, are in the prime of their careers. 
whereas the United States squad is just approaching their primes as far as age range go. And also, if you look at it, Morocco and the United States have nine and 10 players who have, per transfermarket.com, for that great website, have nine or 10 players with 30 or more international appearances. Now, is that caps? I don't know. They defined it as international appearances, so it could include friendlies as well. Uh, Morocco has eight players with 10 or less international appearances, and the United States has four players with 10 or less. But what that tells me is not that the United States has more experience on the international stage. It's that they had to run out all these young guys. They didn't have that kind of middle generation to take some of these caps away. So you have a Moroccan squad who has been doing it for two or three years on average more than the United States players, but the U.S. players have the same kind of international experience as far as games played. So the Moroccan players are much more experienced and in the prime of their careers. And I think that has given them an edge. Now, if we look at some other financial statistics out on the transfer market website, they have they give you even more of a, a similarity between these two squads, right? You have a Moroccan squad that is valued at about 241 million euros where the United States is valued at about 277 million euros. And yes, that's similar, but Morocco has one player valued at 65 million euros. That's Ashraf Hakimi, the, the right back for PSG, for Paris Saint-Germain. Their next most expensive player is at 25 million. Now you look at the United States roster, the top half of our roster is, is all in like the, the 10s, 20s, and 30s of millions with Christian Pulisic being the most expensive player valued at 38 million, Gio Reyna at 35 million, Brendan Aronson at 30, Weston McKenney at 21, and Eunice Musa at 20 million euros of their uh, expected value there. So Morocco has the most valuable player, but the United States has a lot of guys who are approaching their biggest payouts, right? I anticipate all the guys I just named their values to continue to increase as they continue to play and perform well and get into starting roles and do a lot more for their club. So if things go right for U.S. soccer, and this is now my opinion, if things go right for U.S. soccer, instead of seeing nine guys in the top five league on the bench, we're going to see seven to ten players during the next World Cup cycle for the USMNT stay in those top five leagues and earn starting positions. And we're going to see the back half of the American roster become a lot more European centric. Now I'm not bashing the MLS and I'm not saying they have to go over to Europe to be that, that starter or that player for the U S men's national team or to maximize their potential. But the fact of the matter is it is a different level of competition not just in difficulty, but in environment and in tactics and in experiences. And we need to have guys who have all of that to be able to identify that when we get to the national team level. So again, I would expect to see the starting lineup really reflect uh, at the next World Cup, seven to 10 guys playing in England, Spain, Italy, France, Germany, those are going to be the bulk of the U.S. starters. And then you're going to see some of our bench players and maybe even a couple of starters playing in the Netherlands, Belgium, possibly Portugal, um, 
trying to think of another league, the Scottish Premiership. We have Cameron Carter-Vickers playing at Celtic and doing it at an extremely high level for that club and able to come in and do it for the United States on the world stage. So that is kind of what I would expect to see. So if we're going to say, why can't the USMNT do what Morocco is doing right now? I, I think they are. They're not getting the results, but they're just a couple years behind Morocco in that player development, right? And in targeting the next World Cup to star in. So that is what, what I'm thinking. You always got to remember there's going to be three or four players on every World Cup roster who are not going to be playing any minutes in the World Cup, but that are needed there for experience, right? You need some youngsters so you can have some of that institutional memory, to borrow a corporate phrase, uh, and as well as just to share experiences, right? A lot of people didn't think DeAndre Yedlin had the quality to be here, but he's the only guy who's ever played in a World Cup game before. So he was going to be on that roster to at least share some of those experiences. So you see a guy like Ethan Horvath, who, who might not have gotten minutes uh, over Sean Johnson or, or Matt Turner, arguable, who's the number two or number three in, in that goalkeeping pool, but he's the youngster who they need to get experience there, right? We've got a young team. And it's only going to get more and more experience. And I think we're going to target that going into the next World Cup. Now, let's take a few look at comments before we jump into our halftime break. Connor Knows Soccer says, the U.S. Soccer Federation needs a complete overhaul to change anything. And that's a bold statement, Connor. Considering that they've brought in Brian McBride, Ernie Stewart, considering they've brought in a lot of former players and created new positions, I think they're in the right direction. I don't think you need to fire everyone and rebuild because then you're going to lose any progress you've made with the current player pool. But I completely understand your sentiment and that we need to overhaul things in order to have real change. Honestly, I see it with my hometown Chicago Bears here until they actually get sold by the McCaskies and, and drive out anybody that's been managing that that franchise for the last hundred years. Nothing's going to change. They're going to win anything again. So so I see, I see what you're saying and that there needs to be change. There needs to be some new vision, new ideas. Um, but at the same time, I would hate to lose any of the progress we've made with what everyone is agreeing on, the most talented player pool ever in U.S. history. Uh, and a new Wiseman agrees with you, Connor. He says the USSF only line up their pockets. They don't provide any support for U.S. youth development. Uh, interesting take because we're starting to see MLS focus on – academies and development with MLS Next, MLS Next Pro, different academy systems. The USL has got an extremely wide recruiting net as well. I wonder if other federations around the world, I wonder if England, France, Italy, if, if their federations are funneling money into youth development programs or if they are allowing the clubs and academies to really identify the talent for them. I think that's another thing uh, that, that we need to think about. I don't know much about the youth systems. Um, but I think that is something that, that we need to address and at least acknowledge. So I, I appreciate that. And yeah, I'm with you a new Wiseman. This, I will agree with you on. There's no reason why a parent has to pay thousands a year in the hopes their kid becomes the next Messi. And, and I can't attest to paying thousands a year, but I, I can from personal experience know that I was left off of an Olympic development squad in Northern Indiana, uh, to make room for the coach's son and nephew. So I, I will say that that the identifying of talent needs to take a step forward for sure. Uh, New Wiseman continues on saying, while MLS only fights with USL and NISA for supremacy, great. 
Hey, we have Jeffrey Davila jumping into the chat. Hello. Welcome back, man. Good to see you. Hope you're enjoying all the conversation as well as all the World Cup. A new Wiseman, thank you for giving us a little bit more on the Japan League and their structure. The J League started around the same time as MLS, except they had a four-tier system, and most of their roster was made out of domestic talent. He continues to say strong domestic leagues can work. Japan was able to win out their group and spoil the competition. That's excellent, and I think that's very key to remember because everyone is saying, forget MLS, we can't have our players playing in MLS if we're going to do anything on the international level, but you're showing that Japan is an example of a domestic league that can get talent to the level of advancing out of the group stage, in fact, even winning their group. Now, I think you what you're honing in on is that they had a four-tier structure. Do, do you want me to say it? Do you, you want me to say pro-rel for MLS? Do you need me to say that pro-rel in USA? Is that is that really what everything's hinting at there? But but the fact is that we had in the United States, you know, these tiers, these other leagues, NASL, which had folded and then kind of came back, and then USL and all its three levels now. But we needed that top flight league with millions and millions of dollars behind it. And that's why we had to create the MLS. So I think the U.S. is going to go that direction. I mean, why are you going to have a league that's that's approaching 30 teams if you're not going to divide it up at some point, unless you really are going to do a truly Eastern-Western kind of thing? But but I don't see that happening. So I really think over the next decade plus or so, and maybe with a lot of the money that the U.S. will get from the World Cup, from investors or whatever the case may be, uh, or just renewed interest in it, uh, or maybe this Apple TV deal, then they can kind of within the top tier of the United States have uh, a promotion and relegation, a tiered system. Um, and then it's going to be MLS versus USL for survival. I don't know if I want to get into that. Uh, Rocky says, sorry, I'm late. Catch me up in the chat. Oh, Rocky, lot to go over, man. Lot to go over. Uh, and, and before we jump into our break here, Connor, no soccer with a great summary here for you, Rocky. Japan is promotion and relegation. It should come to the U.S., but it never will. The bad teams will continue to be bad if they're not fighting to stay up. And, and that's true, right? Ultimately, there needs to be a carrot and a stick. That if you're going to be a terrible, terrible team, there needs to be some sort of punishment. Now, you, you are kind of seeing it because the fans aren't putting up with it in, in many of the with many of these franchises, right? Uh, but at the same time, right now, the, the carrot of just staying in MLS is, is far outweighing the stick of, of the threat of relegation or penalties or whatever the case may be. So that's it. And yeah, Angus, you're absolutely right. MLS would have to pay advancements to teams to convince them to have a relegation system. And, and I get the financial side of it, but now we got to start looking at the soccer side of it. So with that, guys, we are going to take a short break here. We're going to have our halftime break. Um, I'm going to remind everyone on the podcast side, it's just uh, you're going to hear a word from our sponsor. So make sure you go out and support them, support Skira Icelandic Spring Water. You can find it at your local 7-Eleven. For those of you on the YouTube side, you're going to see our sponsor graphic. We'll be back in about 30 seconds or so. See you on the other side. This MLS Weekly Recap is sponsored by Skira Icelandic Spring Water, available at your local 7-Eleven. Icelandic for clear, Skira water comes from a spring in a nature preserve in Iceland with naturally low mineral content. This isn't your average water. Clearly, yes, pun intended, it's one of the best. 
Get some Skira today at your local 7-Eleven. All right, soccer fans, we are back for the second half of our Monday roundup on this December 12th, 12-12. y'all make a wish when you woke up this morning? 12-12, our golden day right now. Um, we got a lot of great comments in the chat, and I'm just going to catch everyone up on those. I love Jeffrey Davila's comment here. Pro Rel would be great for USMNT. There's a lot of good USL players, but they're never going to get called up if there isn't Pro Rel in the United States. I think Pro Rel is absolutely one way to get USL talent noticed. US Open Cup definitely has created a few new contracts for players. I hope that the uh, the major league soccer franchises devote more resources into scouting, not just abroad, but domestically. They are so reliant right now on their own academy systems and finding foreign talent that you're right. Those late bloomers, so to say, or those guys that develop outside of the MLS system uh, may get missed and may have really good careers in USL and potentially may go abroad and play in some lower, you know, second and third divisions overseas. And, and they could be of value to major league soccer clubs. Um, I don't know what the numbers would be if it's, if it's worth it, but you're absolutely right. There definitely needs to be, uh, some more scouting and some some finer looking at the USL system. But man, when you've got the USL championship, USL 1, USL 2, and teams spread across the whole country, scouting all of that is just a logistical nightmare. So I'll give you that. I do like Rocky's comment. We have more than enough squads geographically to make relegation work, but we need stadiums for Atlanta, Seattle, Charlotte, the Chicago Fire, etc., Absolutely, Rocky. Before we can talk about the bigger picture, you need to actually get these clubs to be at, at that system, right? How can we talk about promoting and relegating anyone who doesn't have an academy, who doesn't have an actual soccer-specific stadium, who doesn't have a good training ground? So it's, you, you're not allowing the clubs that are worse off to get caught up before you institute promotion and relegation. Interesting take. I kind of like it. kind of like it a lot. He continues to say that's why the best USL team should be in the MLS and the worst should figure it out in USL. Hmm. Kind of a get your crap together league USL championship or maybe USL one or two. And then uh, once you're, you got your crap together, we'll, we'll consider an MLS franchise. All right. Not, not, a bad, not a bad way to do it. A new Wiseman jumps in and says Sacramento Republic had such a great one. Absolutely. And they were in conversations for an MLS franchise. And unfortunately, that didn't work out in part because they couldn't get their stadium uh, approved and set, if I recall correctly. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Sacramento's a team. Cincinnati's a team. Similarly, now their results, their first three seasons in MLS weren't, wouldn't suggest it. But they were at least able now to uh, develop some better office structure, culture, and as well as building out those facilities, right? And we'll look at Jeffrey Davila's comment here. Look at England. They call up second division players because they give them a chance. And that's why if you're looking at American players going abroad, I, I like players going to Germany. I think that the Bundesliga teams, coaches, environment, and maybe this is because of guys like Steve Trundolo and Julian Green who've gone over in the past and had success, I feel like the Bundesliga squads really give American players a chance. And if the, if an American player fails out of the Bundesliga, it's because they, they couldn't cut it at that level, not because they didn't get a chance or there was favoritism or, you know, we the guy's on a DP spot and we have to play him, nothing like that. You guys keep this chat going. We need to jump into a little MLS 
talk here, and we are going to get into the latest transfer rumors. But please continue the chat going. There are some great comments here. So the first thing, and I, and I love this from MLSsoccer.com. I love their transfer tracker. Their first and a big headline here, PSV Eindhoven is interested in Austin FC homegrown Owen Wolf. That would be huge to have him step up and go over to the Eredivisie, especially the top, not one of the top teams in PSV Eindhoven. He's only going to be 18 years old this season and had 11 starts for Austin FC. So this is a fantastic opportunity for a young, talented American uh, attacking player to go get experience in a league, which I have just come to realize is, is a very attacking friendly league. So excellent. And you know what? This would be a very good piece of business for Austin FC if they retain something along the lines of that 15, 20, 25% sell-on fee because if Owen Wolf goes over there, you know, he's got the name recognition and pedigree. If he can go over there, be successful, and then get sold to that Bundesliga club for $30 million or so or get sold to, uh, say, a La Liga club or a Ligue 1, Ligue 1 club in France, you know, for that 20 to $25 million range, that would be fantastic, right? Um, oh, and I didn't realize this either, that uh, older brother Tyler Wolf is a homegrown winger for Atlanta United, who's playing in the second division in Belgium on loan. So let's see if there's any sort of talk about dollars and cents here. Um, nothing in this article, since it is such a uh, such an early conversation for that report. But yeah, Austin FC homegrown, Owen Wolf linked with PSV Eindhoven. The next one, and and I love anytime I see Jassy's artist's name in the headlines because not only did I really enjoy watching him as a player and still do watching him as a player, but like he's such a polarizing figure in American soccer, both on the national team level and in MLS, that anytime I see his, his name in a headline, I think it's fantastic for conversation. Uh, but speaking of Austin FC as well, Austin FC just signed free agent striker Giasi Zardis, and he is 31 years old. He definitely is going to give them some depth and experience and maybe help them get to that next level. They did it so well, but get them to that next level from a cultural and experience standpoint and see if they can't make some noise uh, within Champions League or within the MLS or within US Open Cup, right? I'm scrolling down to see if Zardis's kind of uh, salary figures or, tra or, or or any of his signing is going to be here as a free agent, but I don't think the clubs are going to disclose that if they don't have to, and it is not part of this article. What is interesting is to say Zardis is sitting is on 97 goals, and he is 13th all-time in uh, MLS goal scoring. So he could hit that 100 mark with Austin FC and have himself a record-breaking kind of season. Some other big news north of the border that I know our good friend and co-host and founder here, Mike G, is happy about. Jonathan Osorio has just signed a contract extension with Toronto FC. It is a three-year contract extension through 2025 with an option for 2026. Now, I, I wish the article would say if it's a player option or a club option. I'm pretty sure it's a club option. Um, but still... He has 318 appearances for Toronto, the 
the club leader. Everything that I've seen on social media that TFC fans are in love with this. Uh, he was, he's still 30 years old, was playing with Canada in the World Cup just now. Um, he has been everything for TFC and a big part of what Canada does. So he was the first TFC player to hit 300 appearances for the club across all competitions. And he has 58 goals across all competitions, third in TFC history. Um, he's he's 21 behind Altidore, so I don't know if he'll hit that over the next couple, three years, but it's definitely possible. So great signing for TFC from a fan perspective to keep one of their legends in red, but also from an actual on-the-field perspective. It's great to see. Also, speaking of Canadian soccer, Minnesota United claimed Canada defender Daniil Henry off of waivers. Now, Henry was on the, the Canada World Cup roster, but had to withdraw due to injury. So Minnesota United is getting a solid defender, 29 years old, which is just as good as anyone when you're playing defense, right? Uh, and it says Minnesota is returning Michael Boxall, Brent Coleman as starters, and Bakaya Debase is recovering from surgery. So you're going to see Daniel Henry have the opportunity to earn a starting spot with Minnesota United. And the last major headline before we take a few of your comments, we have Leeds United midfielder Matthias Klick, and I'm sorry if I am mispronouncing that, Klick, Klich, Klich, uh, he is in talks to sign with DC United in advanced talks, as the headline here on MLS Transfer Tracker says. Uh, DC United in advanced talks to sign Poland international central midfielder Mateusz Klich from Leeds United. Um, he would not be a designated player, though, according to the article uh, by Tom Bogert. He's got 41 caps with Poland, has been with Leeds since 2017, and this I think would be an excellent get, an excellent signing for DC United, who is trying to rebuild a little bit, well, who's trying to rebuild a lot of bit of that winning culture, and having a solid midfielder to link up with some of the attacking pieces they signed would be uh, a fantastic move for them. Let's take a couple look, a couple comments of yours, and then we'll run down the last few transfer trackers before we start uh, wrapping up the show. Uh, I like here what Rocky says. Loves Zardis in Austin. They will make the playoffs again. It's going to be fantastic to see, to see uh, Zardis <laughs> again in the MLS uh, playoffs here. A new Wiseman says, so check this out. All right, let's check it out. Atlanta United has a partnership with Aberdeen FC in the Scottish Premier League. And last month, they had a friendly at the training ground. Atlanta didn't advertise it at all. Wow, that is shocking that Atlanta wouldn't advertise it. I wonder what what sort of clauses went into that contract that would make them not want to advertise that. Um, may, maybe there's a reason to have it closed door. Maybe it was a private. Hey, maybe it was a private event. Event, right? Maybe there's some billionaire Scottishman who just wanted to pull a Scrooge McDuck and have his his own private soccer game. I don't know. But that is very interesting, and I'm glad you bring it up because that seems like a really easy way to make a few bucks, right? And we never know what sort of negotiations and deals are going on with uh, any of the contracts with workers who have to come in and man and staff those games and sell tickets and sell concessions and all that sort of thing. Um, but a new Wiseman continues to say it made me wonder if Atlanta even cares about the partnership because we had nobody from the front office at the dinner party as well. Well, that kind of blows my Scrooge McDuck theory out of the water there. Um, I, you know, with Atlanta getting Garth Lagerway, 
I'm going to assume that this was just kind of a, an oversight in a transitional period with, with a new uh, president stepping in. That'll be my assumption. As you hear things, tweet at us. Let us know what's going on so we can start making some more critical look at, at a club in Major League Soccer who kind of blew a great advertising opportunity here. Um, Rocky says MLS teams do not share anything. They don't have to for sure. And yeah, that's that's the drawback of being a, a closed system, a single entity structure, right? Um, and a new Wiseman says, "I was there for the match. Uh, Aberdeen FC advertised it, so I'm glad you were there, and and I'm glad to see that these kind of partnerships can grow and maybe get some players going overseas and back and forth. But yeah, would have loved to hear a lot more about it and seen how and see who Atlanta United rolled out for that match. Jeffrey Davila says, "Click would be a great signing for DC United after last season." Uh, so yeah, considering how well Leeds did to stay out of relegation and, and come on back and and even make some noise early on this year, it would be great to uh, great to get him over here and have him kind of teach a little bit of what's going on in the English Premier League to DC United. All right, let's take a look at a few other transfer tracker headlines. We'll kind of do our lightning round here. Uh, San Jose Earthquakes have signed midfielder Judson to a new contract. That guy. If he's on my team, I love him. If he's not on my team, I hate him. Like, he was just one of those instigators, I think, in watching him play. And that's why he was so entertaining to watch San Jose play last year because of guys like Judson. So it's nice from an MLS fan perspective to see him back with the Quakes. But, but man, he he's definitely one of those guys that can play a villain role if you're looking for someone to cheer against. Minnesota United also signed defender Zarek Valentin in free agency, guy who kind of made his name at Portland, if I recall. Rocky, you can fill us in about Zarek Valentin. Uh, most recently, I believe, with Houston. So United also Minnesota United continuing to shore up that back line. I think they feel like their offense is good enough if Reynoso uh, can continue his fine run of form. Next, the Rapids acquire Kevin Cabral from the LA Galaxy. Now, Cabral... They had high hopes for him in L.A., but it did not work out from a performance standpoint. So I can I'm, I see them making the move, and I see L.A. needing to kind of either, either drop some salary cap here and move a guy like Cabral in order to kind of elevate themselves to, to, to being a consistent playoff team and to making uh, some noise this year. And thank you, Anu Wiseman. And mostly Academy kids are playing in that Atlanta United game. Perfect. Um, Austin FC is bringing back defender Hector Jimenez. Uh, Houston Dynamo also signed forward. And I'm going to butcher this, but I'm going to try it anyway. Ifuninyaki Achara. Ifuninyachi Achara. I think there's going to be a lot of puns about having fun. I fun and Yachi. Anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll let the bad bloggers write about that sort of thing. But Houston signing a forward. Showing that they want to build a little bit more in the attack there. That's a good sign for Houston Dynamo fans. DC United also signed Iraqi international defender Mohanad Jehaze. And Minnesota United signed goalkeeper Clint Irwin in free agency. And I think from that part, uh, we're just about caught up with things from last week. Oh, can't forget the Union signing Andres Pereira in a trade with Orlando City. Orlando City continues making moves. They have turned over so much on that roster, and and is it going to work out? I don't know. But here's this. Here's a big MLS move. Andres Perea goes to Philly, and Orlando received eight hundred fifty thousand in GAM general allocation money, 
and a sell-on fee. And a sell-on fee. He's only 22 years old, and this could be a huge, huge money-making opportunity for Orlando, and it could be an excellent move for Philadelphia Union to continue to have solid, solid attacking midfield options um, as they have moved on from Paxton Harrison, who has been sold over to the Bundesliga. So this is a, a big news, big news within the league, huge trade there, especially for approaching a million dollars, which I believe is still the record for an interleague trade. And here it even says Pereira has a U.S. men's national team appearance uh, playing in a friendly against TNT in 2021. And he had switched from Columbia after representing them at the youth level. So this is a rising talent. Keep an eye on him at Philly. Well, guys, we are about 45 minutes into the show. I am I am running out of breath. So we're going to wrap it here. I want to thank everyone who joined us in the chat. For Jeffrey Davila for jumping on in. Rocky at Talking to Woods for keeping us up to speed on all things over there in Portland as well as all of his knowledge around the league. For a new Wiseman, thank you for sending us the headlines. Connor No Soccer, appreciate you jumping in and giving us your opinions. Angus McCorder, always great to have you on. Guys, it has been a fantastic chat. Uh, I just published the blog post giving you a little bit of a deeper dive into that Morocco-USMNT comparison. Make sure you go find that. I will shortly add the link into the description or into the comments of this video. But with that, guys, have a wonderful night. I appreciate you guys tuning in each and every week. It's a lot of fun for me. I hope you enjoy it as well. Have a great evening and enjoy the rest of the World Cup.